0: This is the good, the baz and the ugly I'm the baz Well that, no, I'm baz That sounds weird if I were going around and calling myself the baz Anyway, uh, look, this podcast is filled with uncensored interviews with experts in particular fields Or real life stories from people who have inspiring personal tales to tell It covers various topics and life stories that I've really dug, you know what I mean? And I think you'll dig them too Just so you know, this podcast is for grown-ups It may contain adult themes, sexual references and strong language Fuck yeah! No, I just wanted it. She ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. Hold uh, it now, wait, hold it. I know you're gonna dig this. I think the best thing for me to do is to introduce him. What's the <laughs> What's his name? Baz Ashwami. It's not Baz Ashwami, it's Baz Ashmawi. There you go, socially distanced with a smile. Yep. Uh you're very welcome to Yay! Good man. I, I kinda miss John John. John John Yeah, I know you're there, but you're not there, there. Anyway, look, I'm not gonna get down at the start of the podcast. You're very welcome to the good, the bad and the ugly episode someone show me fingers. Six. Six, I know that. Episode six. Uh, Jordan and the Somali Pirates. It sounds like a children's book. It's not. It's definitely not that. Um anyway, look, first things first. I am missing you, John John, a bit. Thank you. I'm nice. Missing both of you guys. Too. Are you? It's just. Oh, so I miss you too. We're still just for anyone uh, in other places outside of Ireland. We're in uh, level five for the last few weeks, so everyone's like living. A a weeks. Week. Just, this is week two. I hate to disappoint. You. Okay, whatever. It's you know, and I have to say, missing me all life a little. I am. It's hard. It's a flipping pandemic. doing me nothing. Um, my life has. My life has no flavor. Do you know what I mean by that? The world has no taste. It's all just fucking chicken. That's what it feels like. It's just bland all the time. And usually I'll be looking at John John's face and I'll be able to slag him to his face. And now it's just not as much fun. It's just not as much fun slagging someone who's a little face on a phone. Do you know what I mean? But but I miss you as well man I do You, know, you know, do you know what it is it's been stuck in your bubble with your family and of course you're staring at your family like they're new cellmates uh, and you're away from your friends and Jesus Christ I even miss my barista next door coffee shop next door is shut down like I make shitty coffee I never realised I miss- did di- di- <laughs> funny <laughs> I miss sitting down having lunches not even not even with John John and Mahi but just just on my own even just the cinema I should say of course like you know, this sounds like I'm being very negative. I'm not a negative person. You know what I'm like, guys. You know, but I'm also incredibly lucky, as we all are. Mahi, you're lucky. Yeah. Look how lucky you are. Look at me. I look at me. Say yeah. I'm lucky. I'm lucky. You're lucky, John. 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 <laughs> you're say, are you lucky? John. John. I'm very lucky. Yeah, you're very lucky. I'm incredibly lucky too, because I do a show here called DIY SOS Ireland, right? And, yeah. And this show is where we get volunteers to come together to help families who are living in conditions that are impossible, whether that's because the children are living with like life-threatening conditions or where someone has had a life-changing accident, you know, and, and the house doesn't work for them anymore. Maybe they're in a wheelchair and they, they can't do their OT and their development. And, and then these volunteers, they swoop in and they they build these people's houses in nine days. It's magnificent. And making the show has taught me about real woes. Jesus, woes. Every time I get in front of this mic, I say some word I've never used before. But woe is the right word. It's a bit, Shakespeare, like, I don't know. Charles It's <laughs> Charles Dickney. It's more Shakespeare, I think, isn't it? But whatever. Real woes are real woes. And, and that's the thing. And the show has taught me that. It's taught me, shut up, Baz. Your life's grand. You know, you're one of the lucky ones. And it's true. Uh, it's also taught me that there's good people in the world, which is it's very needed. and um, People who are caring and kind, like the volunteers in the show, and also my guest that's coming up. Um, and three, that that the families that I meet who are told that their child will die in six weeks, like nine years ago, and have to live with that. Or even the kids who are now in wheelchairs and are are relearning to walk, if that's even possible for them. Them and their parents, in their eyes, I see i see a fight i see blinkered focus they have heart and they have uh, they have resilience that's the that's the that's your huckleberry right there that's what this is about i'm a person capable of amazing things that's why i want to talk about resilience and about finding inner strength because it's all relative however big or small your problems are i feel resilience is so important now not even now all the time what am i saying it's always important isn't it that's why I said to John John, John John, who are you going to get me to talk about resilience with? And who did you say, John John? Jordan Wiley. Jordan Wiley. Jordan Wiley, for those of you that don't know, Jordan Wiley is a former soldier, best-selling author, extreme adventurer, and also one of the stars of Channel 4's uh, show, Hunted. Brilliant show, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Um, Jordan served for 10 years in the army. On leaving the army, Jordan entered the world of maritime security, making headlines after armed Somali pirates boarded a ship that he was protecting, and Jordan found himself in charge. John John would be in a dinghy on his own. Gone as I would be with him and, and, and Mahi would be the Muslim girl on her own and fighting off Somali pirates um, it was this experience that led Jordan to write Citadel fantastic book fantastic. best selling number one book check it out he was also the lead advisor to Tom Hanks and producers on the movie Captain Phillips great nice. fucking movie nice. nice movie in October 2019 Jordan became the first person in history to row solo and unsupported across the most dangerous strait of water on the planet Bab El Mun Dub straits between the horn of africa and yemen jordan has also successfully completed the highly publicized running dangerously which saw him run marathons through afghanistan iraq and somalia and god knows where else now look since his time in the military jordan has battled with severe depression chronic anxiety and more recently epilepsy john john what are you doing it sounds like you're unzipping now i know you're excited about this podcast but john john what are you doing (laughs) pencil case it's a pencil case john john John, John, why have you got a pencil case out are you making oh right okay okay if you could just keep your pencil this is what i'm working with this honestly this one okay just keep your pencil in your pencil case john john it just sounded very seedy in the middle of jordan's intro look this man has done amazing stuff that's what i'm trying to tell you on the weekend of the 26th of july 2020 jordan begun his attempt to be the first person in the world to do a stand-up paddleboard around great britain a complete circumnavigation of over 2,000 miles of paddling wow yes wow we were lucky enough to catch him on his day off in dublin pre-lockdown i should say this is that chat I wanted to do a show on resilience, right? And I said it to John John, and then uh, John John uh, uh, showed me you, and I started reading up. I didn't know. I don't know where to fucking start. With you. <laughs> do you know? I was like, I I love I love adventure, right? And uh, I've prided myself on, on doing extreme things and all this. But who took the jam from your donut? Because, <laughs> honestly. So, I suppose the best way to start is maybe at the beginning. Like, where are you from? Um, what was your childhood like? Um, Maybe take it from there. Because yeah, yeah. It, there, there's a lot, isn't there, with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a bit of a journey, I guess. I came from... I wouldn't say a rough
1: background, but, you know, I had the challenges like uh, working class family, grew up on a council estate uh, in Blackpool in Lancashire. Yeah. Um, But, you know, whatever I lacked materialistically, I I, I had in love, you know, from two incredible supportive parents who uh, worked extremely hard all their lives. You know, Uh, my father was a military man himself had a career in the uh, Royal Marines um, and was always into adventure in the outdoors. Uh, and, my, and my mother, again, just a working class lady, always grafting away, you know, making sure food was on the table for us. And um, I, we were in quite a poor area, but certainly, um, as I say, we, we, I had lots of love around me and lots of
0: support. Did you travel a lot if your dad was a Marine? Is, there, is that no? that's not the yeah, type?
1: Um, you know, I traveled a bit, but it wasn't, you know, most of my, my youth was spent in Blackpool. Um, But I I was to be truth be told I was I was always intrigued by sport and adventure and I was terrible at school You know, I left school with no qualifications. No GCSEs. What age were you then? At at 16. Yeah, I joined the army at 16 and uh, joined the British army. It's young isn't
0: it to join the army? It is
1: yeah And I think a lot of that is is because of you know, it's almost you know all your friends are going to colleges and universities and if you've got no grades you know, I was I was in trouble with the police, you know, now and again. As a, as a 15, 14, 15, 16-year-old, I had a criminal record at 14 for drunken disorderly, you know, just mouthing off and being a cheeky little teenager. Um, it's
0: a trade-off when you're that <laughs> age. I know I got sent to a Borstal when I was 14. Yeah. And it put manners on me really fast. Where, yeah, where, I
1: think that's what the army did for me. Yeah. It, you know, I was... I, I was I was a naughty teenager, but
0: sport always got me through life. For but. people who can't see you, you're you're a big unit, aren't you? <laughs> like I'm a big unit, but you're a big unit. What, what size are you? I'm six three. You're six three, right? Yeah. And you're stacked. You're 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 putting us all to shame. John, John, John <laughs> John's crossing his legs as we're looking at you. And um, so tell me, you started in the army. What was that like? Yeah, it was it was a culture
1: shock, you know, having somebody shouting at you to get out of bed at uh, you know ridiculous o'clock in the morning, you know, because I, I was that teenager who you know would sleep in on a Saturday and, and, and be quite lazy if I weren't playing football. There was nothing really that interested me, you know, at fourteen, fifteen, I started discovering uh, girls, alcohol, mm-hmm. uh, and all those things that distract. You know, your, your teenager today, I guess, still, but you know i i loved adventure i loved the spirit of adventure and i loved traveling and meeting new people and the army i didn't realize at the time was a great place for that because it took me around the world to some incredible places also to some not very nice places but all the experiences allowed me to learn about life about myself and it put me in in, in challenging circumstances that you either sort of you know you you, you sink
0: or swim out, so to it's speak. mad to go from like a housing estate to the world. Yeah, absolutely. Is, you know, absolutely. that's a big transition. Tell me this, were you lonely in the army or no, you're you're a lad's lad and you kind of got yeah, on with man, everyone fairly fast?
1: No, I think so, yeah. I think that's something, you know, I've never been someone who's intelligent or educated, but I've always had that skill, probably like yourself, of being streetwise. I can adapt quickly to different environments and I think that's what in this day and age, that's what gets you. You can almost be quite successful from that ability to, to improvise and adapt and, and see
0: opportunities as well. Well, I think like it's funny you say that because because there's this snobbery. I, I, I imagine in the UK it's the same, but there's a certain snobbery here towards trades. Yeah. It, it has been a thing for years. While well, you look at countries like Germany, where you know if you're not an academic. You know, doing a trade, doing being a sparks, or doing whatever you do is encouraged. You know, while here there's a kind of oh, you didn't go to college, kind of like I've personally never went to college either, and I just got into what I was into and got passionate about that. Yeah. When you, when you, what was your first chalk in the army? What was your first big trip away?
1: Um, so I was actually, you know, I was in Northern Ireland, it was my first tour operations, um, and I'd heard all these things about, you know, what goes on in, the, in, in Northern Ireland and all the history surrounding it. And for me it was quite strange, because I remember as a, I, mean, I was 18 when I got sent there, it was just like being in England, but you was locked in a camp, <laughs> and that's the way I saw it. I thought, this is no different than being at home. Yeah. <laughs> and, but there was obviously all this history of the troubles in Northern Ireland. Of um, and and, and I, I do feel, having come back to Northern Ireland and, I, and Ireland, we're very much, as a, as a soldier, and, and I can say the same about Iraq or Afghanistan, we're brainwashed into a way of thinking that they want us to think. And, and you know, I've gone back to a lot of conflict zones as a civilian, and the way I, I've
0: challenged a lot of the perceptions that I was yeah, tuned into me as yeah. a soldier, um, it's you know, funny I had a, I had a, my, one of my first serious girlfriends was from England and I remember we were we were in Australia and we were singing uh, kind of Irish songs you know and I was like have you any English songs do you want to sing and she's like yeah you're going to get your fucking heads and she started singing <laughs> this right but she had no concept that it, in Ireland we didn't use sterling yeah you know, she she just thought Ireland was an extension of England and and in Ireland you're taught all this history from a very young age and I realised, once I kind of got with her, that they, she didn't have this kind of animosity. She didn't have, she just, she knew nothing about yeah, it, yeah. But yet in Ireland you're kind of... Fe- so how was Northern Ireland, tell me then? I
1: was, um, you know, I, I was very young, um, I learned a lot about life, culture, but for most of the troubles had, had well passed when I got there. I got there in 2001 and one, two. you know, I, all the history was surrounded there and we were talked about it and there was... Um, I worked actually in intelligence um, when I was in the army what as well. What does that involve? I
0: have no idea. Sounds good. G- gathering
1: information about um, criminals, terrorists, and, and, and digging around in their lives uh, and, and trying to, I guess, sort of second guess what they will do next or what they'll be involved in and so how do
0: you do that is that like is that like uh, stakeouts
1: and, and yeah that's surveillance and and watching people and and under you know getting a really just profiling people and and and, and digging into to, to what they may or may not be involved in and, and 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 trying to ultimately prosecute people help the law enforcement agencies bring these you know whether they're terrorists or criminals to accountability um, but you know as i've learned there are bad people in all aspects of life it doesn't matter what nationality you are um, i got bad people in my own family you know yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it, yeah. it doesn't matter what color you are what race you come from yeah. uh, if, you, if, if 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 i call it the dickhead rule in life there are dickheads everywhere yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and
0: uh, and did you excel did you excel in intelligence did you enjoy that I, I loved it
1: i thought for me it was a real highlight of my military career because i joined and i was actually in an armored regiment the cavalry so tanks was my my trade uh, to to you know and, and it's and it's quite a Cool, sexy job as a 17, 18 year old bombing around in 62 tons worth of armour worth about 10 million quid, especially when you've only just got your driving licence about two weeks before. <laughs> it's funny. And they give you a tank,
0: which is just incredible. I, um, I did, I w- went out with the UN before and I, I was in. Um, Chad, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I remember talking to one of the tank drivers, and he was milling this tank around, you know. And I was like, "What do you drive at home?" He's like, "A Corsa." And and that's what i was saying for <laughs> me. What
1: was my first car? Was a Corsa. You know, in my day job, I was driving a, a Challenger two main battle tank, which is like the ultimate death machine. And then I was a Vauxhall Corsa. You know, and, uh, which I would couldn't even drive that properly. <laughs> I was crashing it into anything. Yeah. Um, but you know it was uh, the the military i think the biggest thing for me the military taught me was was to stand for something learn what what who you are as a person your values and i think things like the, the same characteristics that i try and use today like respect for other people you know integrity loyalty re- um, courage selfless commitment it's having values and and I, I you know the, the the political side. I don't know any soldier that ever looked too far into that. You know, we signed up for a job and we did the job. I, again, it didn't matter. You know where you came from or what what your beliefs were. You, you were just a soldier and you got paid at the end of the month and you'd go out on the lash with the lads in between. And, and if they sent you somewhere, you know, great. We go we go somewhere because you talk
0: about those things like integrity and courage and and. They're big things though, right there Massive they're. things, yeah, massive. But
1: they're the same traits that I try and use. I, I left the army 10 years ago, and I anything I do, I, I question myself against those same character traits today. You know, whether it's as a father, whether it's a member of society, whether it's on an expedition in an adventure. And I, I find that if I hold myself accountable to those
0: characteristics, then I know I'm doing the right thing. There are great traits to be able to be armed with? Are they things that developed quite quickly for you or or did you have to?
1: No, I don't think so. I, I, I'm i somebody who's made loads of mistakes. You know, I've, I've whether it's been in, in love life, in business in I, I'm somebody who's constantly, you know, I don't get things right all the time, but I, I, I do believe in the ability to grow and learn from from any mistakes that you make. You know, I don't think life moves so quickly these days and we never know what's around the corner. And you can't sit and dwell on the past because you can't do anything about it, but you can affect your future. And if you take those lessons and try and use them and apply them to your future relationships you, with, with in love, in business, in life, you know, you, you can evolve and grow as a person uh, quite quickly, I think. And there are lessons around us all the time, just like there are opportunities around us all the time. And if you're savvy enough and street wise enough and prepared to own your mistakes, I, I really do think it's important to own your mistakes if you know if you cock up, if you mess up you have to put your hand up and say, do you know what? Mm. I got it wrong. Mm. And, I've, and and it, you might have to do that publicly and it might mm. be embarrassing for a short period of time, but in the long run, you will learn a lot more respect and you will grow as a person uh, a lot better. I, I think
0: that, it, and that again, comes back to that integrity. Sometimes, like I was saying to someone else, like I've learned so much more from failing at things oh, than absolutely. I've ever learned succeeding at things, you know? Um, was there... You spent 10 years in the army, was there a reason you left the army or had you outgrown it or what was...?
1: Yeah, there was a few reasons. I got a bit of an injury so my career slowed down. It wasn't an injury significant enough to kill my army career, but it was an injury enough to stop me going... It was a back injury so I couldn't go on certain courses uh, and, and, and so, so I, was, I was flying along quite nicely um, and, and that slowed down. And when you see sort of young soldiers coming in and they're passing you in the career ladder, it mm-hmm. becomes quite depressing actually. And I also saw the private sector, the private security sector, and people were earning in a day what I would earn in a month. And they were former colleagues of mine who served alongside me in places like Iraq or, or Northern Ireland, wherever it might be. Uh, and I thought to myself, Do you know what? I want a bit of that as well. You um, were out in Iraq, were you? Yeah, I did two tours of Iraq in zero five and zero seven. That
0: can't have been easy out there.
1: No, it, it was. Um, it was tough. You know, lots of highs and lows, and and for me, you know, losing comrades and colleagues on operations who you know you're sharing a room with and then they don't come home after a patrol one day that's you know that's the the ultimate low in life i think um especially who who, you know you live and breathe you're in each other you're in a brotherhood right yeah anytime i've
0: worked with like say fdny or firefighters or or any any kind of um organized group like that you know they're they're a brotherhood you know 100 percent One hundred percent you 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 know and a brotherhood is deeper than
1: It's a deeper bond than you will find anywhere else in life and and, and brotherhoods are only formed in, for me, in combat operations where life or death situations, you might not even like that person but you put your life on your line for that person because he's part of the family and I don't think, I think that's why a lot of ex-military personnel from across the world really struggle adapting to civilian life. We see it quite a lot with the transition um, because I don't think you find that in the civilian world. Um, well, no one
0: normally is in that situation. No, no, and, and not because civilians yeah. are bad or anything, no, just no. because they're
1: never exposed yeah. to the hardships and the circumstances of being in war and conflict. Uh, you know, if you spend six months in a place like Iraq or Afghanistan where you're dodging bullets every day, it's it's like we, we talk a lot about mental health at the moment with, with former military. People talk about um, soldiers with post-traumatic stress as if it's abnormal, but it, it's not abnormal. It's actually a perfectly normal reaction to a set of abnormal circumstances. There's nothing wrong with the individual or you as a person, but there is something wrong with getting shot at for six months and then being put back. I I can remember when I first came back from Iraq, we'd been in a firefight with the enemy, if you like, or, or, or with the bad guys, and 24 hours later, you get a rest. You, you, you always get in the middle of an operational tour, a two-week rest and recuperation period, where you would fly home to see your family. And I can remember we we'd been on the Iranian border having a, an exchange of fire, and 24 hours after that, I was on my R and R, and I was in a nightclub in Blackpool. And that is not normal to go from fighting on the front line with all that sort of testosterone, that yeah. adrenaline, those different types of feelings, to then being in a nightclub on a dance floor. You know. And you can see how, how how it can mess people up, and you know, and people. Because
0: I don't know, I don't know if personally. I would have the mental strength to to come back and and get back to normal. I know, I know, but it's, it's not an option,
1: it, is it? That's the that's that's why I think it's it's so crazy because. You, you, it's just you do it. You it's not to. like you have to. You know, you, you don't have a choice. It's not like uh, I'm not going to do it because I'm not strong enough. It's, it's just you're in the army and now you're going home and you're coming back and, and I think that's why we're seeing all these problems in society. You know, years later, after soldiers soldiers have left the army and things because that that process is not managed. I'm, I'm, people are doing great things and, and pioneering in, in, in the subject of mental health for former military personnel. Um, But then you throw in the mix all the other problems, you have the wives and the girlfriends that are left at home that never know if they're going to get that phone call and it's just as hard, I think, for these people who are often the unsung heroes of of the military sort of community, that the children, you know... Were you married while you were in the army? And I had a long-term relationship but I I, I wasn't married, no, No. no, I had a daughter with the person who I was
0: with at the time. Because I always think it must be very hard, like, you, you talk about coming back into society, but even coming back into your family after you've been away on, a, I don't know how long your chokes or six months, nine yeah. months, something, you know, even coming back to family after that or, or, or you, people that you're so close with, that must take a while to adjust back into.
1: No, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And, and for them to adjust to you as well, you know, because often, you know, you, uh, people will come back from these conflict zones and they come back very different people. Um, than than the people that went there because of because of the experience. Are you able to because sh-
0: there's this big thing at the moment about toxic masculinity, right? And I've always thought it was a great thing, uh, just in 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 regards to that. It's okay to be a man, yet to be open, you know, to open up a little more yeah, yeah. than maybe previous generations had, because it was that thing of just be silent, just be, you know, man yeah, up, man up, yeah. man up, kind of thing. But like when you came back, were you able to share things with, with your with your girlfriend or? or I don't or think I was at the time, but I think I am
1: now. Definitely, okay. I'm I'm very openly speak about my own mental health now. Um, you know, I've gotten up I'm, I'm a former soldier who goes on extreme adventures, so I'm, I'm I, I fit the profile of someone who's quite masculine. Yeah. But I'm also the guy who's many a time had a little cry in my pillow. Um, I'd bra- I broke down in giving a talk um, a few months ago, talking about my own mental health and my own challenges. But it was. Perhaps what's quite interesting for me is that it was never, it was never the, the, the things that I saw or, or the friends that I lost that really got in my mind. I sort of, not that, not that I accepted it, but, but I, I can process that because that's a part of war in my mind and, I, and, and bad things happen at war. But for me, it was the, the breakdown of my relationship with my part, the mother of my daughter. It was the anxiety, the stress, the depression from that that, that that makes me really emotional and really upset. And that's something that most people will go through in life breaking down in a relationship that's quite an unfortunately quite a normal thing in society Mm. for a for a long-term relationship to break down and for me it was the fact that my partner moved on and she found Another guy, and now that guy was tucking my daughter in when she went to bed at night and and I was no longer the the, the, the dominant male, if you like that, that that hurts me cuts me deep today mm. to even talk about that still you know, i can I can feel emotion this in me Other fathers have that, that yeah feeling yeah yeah exactly when, you know. but uh, and, and I was you know i I went to see a doctor because i couldn't handle that I was drinking heavily, I was gambling and they and, and straight away the doctors the nurses they they, they put me in there. Post traumatic stress disorder bracket. You're an ex soldier. You've been to hot sandy places. This is this always happens. This this is a classic case. And then you try and fight that, and then you told you in denial, which is the most infuriating thing
0: in the world. Just someone analysing everything <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. saying. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and and for me it wasn't though. It was it was about the general stresses that that life brings. You know, it, it, it was it was a relationship breakdown that caused me. And I was on medication. Till, until the start of the, the, the paddle what I'm doing at the moment, I've been on medication for four years, a sertraline, uh, an antidepressant drug, um, and the moment I've tried to come off it every time, it, it sent me back into a, I'm not, I'm not crazy, I'm not a psycho, but I don't want to get out of bed in the morning, the world's against me, I can't bother today. And, and I'm a very different person to be around when I've not taken that medication. Right. Um, but being at sea doing my paddle has given me a new sort of, leak I, I call it like blue therapy, you know, being in the ocean, spending yeah. time with dolphins and seals. Uh, but the doctors would say to me, you, you in, you're in a bit of a bubble there, you're in a false bubble, that isn't the real world. And I would say,
0: well, it is my will because I'm choosing to do it and I've been doing it for the last three months. Just to go back before we get to that part of your adventure. Um, so you left the army, um, and your mental health was okay? Yeah, it was okay when I left the army, no problems for me. Yeah. Yeah. I and then fine. you got into the private sector. So what's what's that exactly?
1: Yeah, so I was in the private security sector. Um lots of people after the military, they go to, to the places actually that they'd served in, like Iraq, Afghanistan, and they, they they become sort of privateers where they work for private contracted companies, a bit of a I don't want to make it sound loose or, or like cowboys, but a bit of a guns for hire concept. Gotcha. Um and um, I was very fortunate to get some opportunities in the maritime security world, um, which was dealing with pirates, which probably sounds a million miles away from...
0: <laughs> which you have a fantastic book about. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, The Citadel, yeah? Yeah,
1: yeah so um, dealing with pirates, I spent five or six years... Fighting, if you like, pirates or defending ships from pirate attacks off the coast of Somalia. See, I'm going to stop
0: you there for a second. <laughs> what, at any state, does that just normal to you? Did you just think, oh yeah, they're pirates, so I'll just defend? No,
1: no, it wasn't. It is normal now, but it wasn't at the time. I, you know, my vision of a pirate was the guy with a wooden leg and an eye patch and a, and a parrot on the shoulder. <laughs> yeah. But my mate, who was an ex-military guy, rang me up and he said, "We've got a we've got a gig protecting ships from pirates. It's a one-year contract. If you want to get involved, come on, come and get you know, come and do it." And they were literally paying us what I would earn in a month, in a day, to stand on the you know, on the, on the bridge of a ship, which is like the command station, with a gun for three hours on, nine hours off, and just look out to see if any pirates come. You couldn't even... You know, you how, many even you
0: how many of you would be on a ship? Normally three or
1: four of us, and we'd just do shifts of three or four hours and, and take turns. But but the money was incredible. This is like 2009. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the threat was very real. You know, to give you some scale of context, in, in July 2010, um, more than 50 commercial ships you know the ships that would come in dublin ports these container ships the oil tankers 50 of them were hijacked in somali ports with over a thousand seafarers the people who work on them uh, held in captivity it was it was a real multi-billion dollar business
0: for the pirates crazy so tell me this for for the pirates the somalian pirates what what's their goal so their goal is is it was a business model essentially um if they
1: got, they would hijack the ship, which of course would have cargo on it. Could be a couple of hundred million dollars worth of oil, crude oil, or or liquefied natural gas, or whatever it might be. You've got hostages on board. You know, uh, whether we like it or not, the white Westerner was a high-value hostage. You know, an American or a Brit was the was the gold standard if you could catch one of those um, in the ransom, kidnap and ransom market. Um, and who would and be the paying ship,
0: the ransom for that? The, the shipping company? The
1: ship owner, um, but he would take out insurance policies. We have a, in, the, in the Lloyds of London insurance market, we have policies for kidnap and ransom. Um, but, but yeah, so depending on the. What's quite scary is it was always a business decision whether the ransom got paid. So there was many a ransom, and I, and I wrote about it a bit, where the, the seafarers stayed in hij- hijacked in captivity for many years because nobody wanted to pay the ransom for them because the value of their lives. The cargo and the ship itself was not seemed to be worth enough. For That's sort of scary. This is brutal. You know, I, I, there was there was a very famous vessel called the um, the Iceberg Two, and the crew stayed in captivity for nearly four years. Uh, there was suicides in that crew, mass mental health issues, torture uh, from the pirates uh, because they never got paid. The ship owner, who was an and I think he was an Arab ship owner, he just said, "They're not. I haven't got the money." I wash my hands of it.
0: I'm just giving my sister a, di- a dirty look there. Um, we're half Egyptian, um, so it, I think he was a UAE based. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we'll take that. Um, Where do you go? Look, like, were you ever taken hostage? Were you? I, I was never taken hostage. Um, my
1: my, the closest I got was um, my vessel was boarded by pirates, um, and I was security team leader at the time, but I didn't have any weapons on board. We'd, we we were we were an unarmed security team. Um, we were off the coast of Mogadishu, pirates boarded our ship, um, and my job was to, to obviously take control of the situation. So we went down into what's what's called the Citadel, which was the, the mm. title of the book, which is like a, a panic room or a safe room on board the ship, right at the bottom of the ship. And my job was to to get everybody there, account for everybody, and then call in a rescue. The challenge, what I had was that I went to call in a rescue and there was no, we were in a black spot in the ocean so the communications didn't work. Um, so I had to make some quite um, big decisions, let's say. Um. Tell
0: me this though, where, where do you have to go in your head with something like that? Like, I
1: d- well, for me, I'd never been in this. you know, I, I'd been in, in, in conflict on combat operations, but I'd never been in that type of scenario. It's quite a, a unique, ex, you know, you, you you almost can't even prepare for that, that type of situation. Um, so I was, you know, I, I'm in a, in a room that is probably about double the size of this. I've got 20 odd people in there, mixed nationalities from, from the, um, uh, uh, Filipino, Indian, Ukrainian, Russian, all sorts, British, um, and you're in a scenario where the crew know that pirates are on board and you are locked in a room. All the engines have been disabled, all the lights are turned off. You've got people shouting, screaming because they think this is it. This is the end for them. Um,
0: and they're all looking to and you. they're All
1: looking to you, and I'm not the captain either. The captain is the boss, you know. I'm I'm the security team leader, but the captain's looking to me as well. So what
0: happens if you and the captain have a disagreement? Well, we did.
1: We did. We had quite a lot of disagreements, and you know, what I what you try you in the weeks before this, because you're traveling across the ocean to deliver this cargo. You know, what I was always conscious of and what I always tried to do was build up a, a strong, solid rapport. You know, I wanted to be the captain's best friend because if if the shit happened. I needed to know that he he trusted me and that he was gonna take my guidance and experience. And and with respect to You know, seafarers are incredible people, they're some of the most incredible people in the world and and they do a job that is a thankless task. Most people don't realise that 95% of global trade is still done on the ocean and then to think that pirates are on board and and you're under such stress and pressure. So with the captain, uh, you know, I made the decision to leave the safe room because we had no communication, so I made a decision to take the the satellite phone off the wall and say to the captain, I'm going to leave. And the problem is, is that goes against all the protocol because the moment you leave what is considered a safe room, you then compromise the whole crew's lives. because what we have now is a potential hostage situation. If the pirates get hold of me, because I'm out in the ship now, they can get me. We have a hostage situation. uh, So they just put a gun to my head and say to the crew, you come out now or he's gonna die. And the other challenge is, the special forces will not board a ship or the the coalition forces in the region will never board a ship to try and um, neutralize the threat if everybody is not accounted for. So so my communication would normally be, we are now all accounted for in the safe room, in the Citadel, please, you know, they will then board the ship, because they know that anybody who's not in that safe room is the bad guys, so they can deal with the threat. But the problem is, is if you've got a member of the crew outside of the safe room, they don't know who the good and who the bad is, uh, you know, so it it goes from a hostage situation to an opposed boarding
0: and vice versa. Jeez, so, I, like, I can't make a decision if we're gonna have a chicken Caesar or a Mexican salad. <laughs> like, uh, like, how do you how do you get your brain to? Do you just turn into someone else, or is that you? Like? No,
1: no, no. I was, you know, you know, I'm very honest. I was shitting myself. I was scared. I was anxious. I was apprehensive. I was all those emotions rolled into one. And. The, the, the drill was to so so the plan A was was obviously you go down into the safe room. The plan B is if the if the pirates are on board, you call in the rescue. There was no plan C, D, and E. We wasn't prepared for that uh, because we never uh, expected to ever get to that. So for me, it was just like looking at it logically. What can we do? Well, if we stay in this room and don't do nothing, at the same time the pirates. Because you, you think of a big a big cargo ship, it's the deck. There's there's about six or seven decks. So even though the pirates have got on board, we've put locks and obstacles we've made it very dark we've disorientated them so it's still going to take them quite a while to get to the crew and from a pirate's perspective you know you can't control or sail one of these big technical ships you need the captain and the crew to do that so at the stage of being on board as a pirate it's just an illegal boarding it's not a hijack it's only a hijack when you've got control of the crew because you need that crew to sail that ship back to somalia so it was just an illegal boarding and so so that's that's it's not the worst case scenario yeah um so I made a decision that I was going to leave the Citadel. The captain, of course, didn't want me to do that because that went against all the rules and regulations. And for me, I take a lot of lessons about this in life because sometimes there are occasions in life where you have to break the rules in order to survive and succeed. And if if you look at all the great pioneers, whether it's in business, whether it's in combat, These are all people who have gone against the grain often and made a decision to go in a different direction than what perhaps the rule book says. You look at the Steve Jobses, the people like that, the people who have, the the non-conformists, the Martin Luther Kings of the world, Mm -hmm. who have stood up and gone, you know what? No, that might be the rules, but we're going to go in this direction. And I learned a lot from that situation that there will be times that you can break the rules for the better in life, but you can only do that based on the experience, you know. You've got to know the rules inside out before you can break them, otherwise it becomes reckless. And if the listeners want to know what happened next, it's available in all good (laughs) bookshops. Listen, absolutely.
0: Because it's funny you're saying that. There's a Gary Larson cartoon that I saw, and it's this penguin with boxing gloves. They're in a boxing ring, and there's a polar bear decked out on the floor, and he's doing the after-match interview. And he goes, oh, I don't know what happened, John. Like, uh, I suppose my fight or flight kicked in. And as you know, uh, I'm a penguin, so I don't fly, <laughs> right? So a lot of people, like you obviously have that fight or flight. A lot of people, they would just break. Like, I, when I say a lot of people, I mean me. I would be um, scared. And there's a lot of people at the moment who don't feel like they can... They can make themselves fight, or they're scared, or they're lacking courage. All those. But, it was, but again, it wasn't a choice.
1: It's, it's it's born out of necessity to survive. You know, if you're asking me before I went down there, I want to put you in this situation and you're gonna have to deal with it. I'd be going, well, oh, no, I don't want to get in that situation. You know, you have no choice, but because you need what? What do you do otherwise? It, if you, if if I'd have done nothing, I'm basically saying that I'm accepting my fate of I'm leaving my hands. at, my fate at the hands of the pirates. You know what? What? And the likelihood is, as the security guy, as the British, as the white Westerner, yeah. I'm going to get the good news and get end up on you know Al Jazeera or something like that on YouTube, getting yeah. in the boiler suit before anyone else. So you know, you you you, you we are we are the architects of our
0: own destiny in all decisions in life, whatever we do for the good and the bad. You know, we. we is there tools, you, you would, is there things that you would advise people? You know, is there, is there ways to overcome being afraid or, or lacking I think you have
1: to use, I think you have to try and harness that fear as a, and turn it... Fear is often seen as a negative emotion. Um, but, you know, no different than when I get on the water on the paddleboard and the waves are crashing uh, into the side of the boat and the winds go in and, you know, I'm falling into the water and I'm thinking, bloody hell, this is pretty scary. But at the same time, you know, you can, I, I believe you can use that and harness that and embrace it uh, as a force of good in the world. I always try and disconnect my emotion from a decision now, not just in, in, in an extreme scenario, like, that, but if I'm having an argument with my girlfriend, you know, we often have arguments in our in our love life, in our household, where the adrenaline's going, we're all riled up, yeah, we've had a yeah, bad day, yeah. and we'll, we'll snap and we we'll say something that we don't mean, mm-hmm. but we've said it because we're emotional and we're in the moment. Mm-hmm. And that's, I find that is the same with decision making. If you're thinking emotionally and trying to make emotional decisions, quite often you're probably going to get it wrong because you're not breaking it down logically and thinking about the series' of events, the possible outcomes. Because if you
0: did that, you would never have said the things that you said to yeah. people in the past. Sometimes I have heard this about people, you know, when people try to offload or they raise their voice and you raise your voice. And I yeah, heard yeah. a great comparison. They were saying like, it's like going to the zoo. You know, you have someone Like If you go to the zoo and you look at a monkey and the monkey shits in his hand and throws it against the glass. <laughs> you know, you don't shit in your hand and tro- throw it against the glass against them. You just go, look at the stupid fucking monkey. <laughs> so it's about keeping yourself kind of unemotional and just balanced. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, and if you're, what you've got to remember as well, you're not just looking after you. In, in that scenario, you, you, you're looking after a lot of other lives and people as well. And panic breeds more panic. You know, if I'm seen to be panic and stressed and I'm one of the leaders, you know, and that's what, that for me was the argument of the captain. The captain was in real flap mode, you know, he was panicking, he was getting stressed, he was getting agitated, and all that was doing, from a leadership perspective, was panicking his crew. You know, they were becoming more agitated, they were shouting, screaming, they were pulling out pictures of the family, you know, crying, looking at the photos. Uh, and so I was trying to get, you know, I, I took him to one side and grabbed him round the neck and, and said, you need to fucking get a grip of yourself now, yeah. because you're the captain of this boat, you know, and, and I'm gonna help you get out of this situation, but you need to get a grip of yourself. And we saw that many times, you know, we a few incidents with the pirates over the five or seven years—not necessarily where they got on board, but you know they fired at the, at the boat and, and, and uh, rounds or bullets ricocheted uh, in, into the bridge. And again, people went into panic mode. There was there was a captain one time who wanted to. He said, "We need to stop the ship, and we need to just let let the pirates do." And this is before the pirates even got on board or anything. You know, he was he wanted to surrender, and he he he's got he's got young seafarers on board who were also looking at him going, "Bloody hell, is he is he for real, this guy?" You know, and so you know panic panic. Um, it, it does breed a real negative sense of, of, of more panic, so I'm conscious of that as well. But these are only experiences that you learn over life. The first time I was shot at in Iraq, I can remember panicking, and, and I remember I can remember very clearly, um, I, was, I think I was 20, 21 years old, and the first time I got shot at, I was a young Lance Corporal, so a, a very junior leader, right down the pecking order. And I remember, it, for, for it must have been two or three seconds, I remember getting my head down in the sand and I was looking to the left and right for people to tell me what to do. And it was only when I looked at, and realised that they were looking at me <laughs> to, to say, what do we do now? Yeah. Uh, and, and I can remember that really well because I, I shit myself. I was absolutely... But then all of a sudden... Split seconds later, the the adrenaline, the training, everything that you've been through, you built up, and you're like, you click, and then you start making decisions. Right, you know, you're going left flank, and you're going right. This is what's going to happen. It just
0: there's a certain mood at the moment where people have just lost faith in themselves a little bit. At yeah, the yeah. You know, they're just they're just scared of the unknown. You know,
1: uh, and it is scary for everyone, I think. And, and and I think we live in a world now. I say it to young people a lot. You know, a lot of people. I, I my passion is to help develop and grow young people. You know, ch- children who have not yet realized what they want to do or realize their own potential. Why is that
0: just because y- you saw yourself like that when you were
1: younger? I think so. I think everybody needs to believe in themselves. I think, do you know, it sounds really bad, but we have so many uninspiring adults in the world. Um, uh, you know, people who have given up on their dreams already. And these adults, for me, a bit like the, 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 the infectious, what we were just talking about, I see so many adults who, because they've given up on their dreams, they, they they convince everyone else that it's not possible to go and achieve whatever you want is Absolutely. in life. And I see them in, and, and what's scary, I see them in places where they should not be. I see them in youth organisations, in schools, in, in the education sector, which for me should be full of the most inspiring people. These should be enablers to get people to believe they can achieve anything in the world. Um, so... You know, I I, I try and do my best to inspire uh, young people to get them to believe in the self, to get them to believe in in what's perceived to be the impossible, Um, but also be a realist and tell them that, and, and, and try to lead by example and show them that you are going to have to work very hard. It is very competitive, um, but, you know, if you've got a goal and you're striving to achieve it, you know, you, then, then, then absolutely go for it. But you've got to wake up every day and live and breathe that goal because it's not just going to arrive in your lap one day.
0: Um, you know, it's it's, it's a cutthroat it world out there. To be, it, there has to be a work ethic, and that's where some people just think just give up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because they, they don't have that in them. And Tell me this, you, when you were talking about children there, you must have saw, saw a lot when you were in the army with children, right? Yeah, I, I think for me, one of the reasons, so a lot of my charity work involves
1: uh, trying to inspire hope through education, getting people to, whether it's building schools or providing educational resources for children in conflict zones. There was There was an occasion for me on my first tour of Iraq where, um, I, again, I was a very junior commander as a, a, a non-commissioned officer and we were going to a place called Majir al-Kabir, which is, which is in um, the Mesan province, just north of Basra. And we were driving down this road one day and we were in a, a convoy of three Land Rovers and I was in the front vehicle and there were some children playing um, a couple of, maybe about half a mile, quarter of a mile ahead of us. And I remember thinking at the time, these children, because it was like a main road. It was like you know the main, the M1 or whatever you would call it in 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 Dublin. It was it was a main transit route, mm. like a motorway. You wouldn't you wouldn't play at the side of it if you was a kid. And I remember seeing these kids, and my immediate sort of tactical head was, we're probably driving into an ambush of some sort. These kids have been placed there, so we will stop and slow down, and then then shit's going to happen. Uh, that, and that was quite a common tactic, you know, in 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 the military at the time. I remember
0: being in Chad and and seeing. You know, after there was gunfights or target practice, the kids would come around, they they would collect the shells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're just like, God, why, why are you guys here? You it's just, a different just, world. And,
1: and no child should be exposed to that, I, I don't think. And on this particular occasion, I remember thinking, right, let, let's just stand by everybody. Stand Stood all the troops too on the top cover who were on top of the vehicle and said, you know, you could be going into an ambush sort of thing. Anyway, I... um got a bit closer and I realised that the kids weren't there to harm us or hurt us, actually they were in distress and one of the little boys, little 10 year old boy, he'd actually lost his, his leg clean off and he and he'd inadvertently stood on a roadside bomb, which was probably designed to take out one of our patrols. And we, we stopped the vehicle and did all our drills, secured the area. And I remember we put a tourniquet on this little boy and tried to, to stem the bleeding, it was a you know, real serious catastrophic bleed, he was bleeding out. Um, long story short, we tragically couldn't save this little boy. And I was I was working in intelligence at the time in, in, in Iraq for the British military, and I said to my interpreter, what were these kids doing playing at the side of a main road? Why didn't they just go to school like everybody else does in the world? And he looked at me like in complete disgust and horror, and he said, Jordan, you've got a lot, a lot to learn in life, you. He said, these kids will never go to school. They are not privileged to have the, the, the opportunities that you had. And it was the first time that I realised, and you know, and I did terrible at school. But what I did have was the opportunity at school. Absolutely, you know, and and I realised that bloody hell, you know, what a little shit I was, because these kids would, and I saw it every day. All these kids in these places, all they wanted to do was learn. They love learning. They mm-hmm. thrive on it, but they would never get the opportunity because you know, whether the school had been blown up or the school was a hundred kilometres away or you had to pay or for a hundred reasons. And I said that night to my interpreter um who was a local iraqi gentleman i said to him one day i would love to come back and try and help some of these children because it's just for me children are the ultimate victims of war and conflict everywhere in the world you know i I was in syria uh, not too long ago and i met a little boy who was like seven years old and a shell came in probably about half a kilometer away it was never near us but it was it was enough for us to hear it and and enough for me to react and want to get down and, and get out the way and this little boy just carried on playing football and I said, again, to my local agent there, the sort of fixer, I said, bloody hell, is it he not scare him? And he was like, that's what he lives with every day since he was born. Why would it scare him? That's normal for him. And, it shouldn't be normal yeah. for anyone.
0: Like, oh, my God.
1: I'm always, I always try to be grateful for life now. I think that was one thing the military taught me as well, is, is a sense of gratitude. You know, whatever, whatever you're doing in life, however of a shit day you're having, even with COVID now, you know, with COVID, we're all complaining. And don't get me wrong, if you've been affected and, and people have passed away, that is absolutely brutal and tragic. But still, I look at the situation in places like the Yemen at the moment, where bombs are being dropped every day and hundreds of children are dying all the time. You know, these this is their normal. You know, COVID's COVID's not even a problem. They're not even bo- they're dying of COVID as well. But you know, these are people who are living and breathing war and conflict every day, um, and nobody wants to talk about it either. You know, this is it's like it's like the children have fell off the face of the earth, um, and we have we as humans we have this terrible trait of only being bothered about things if it affects us. You know and
0: it's just, just having a small
1: world yeah yeah we just we, we look is. at the
0: world like what's our problems today yeah. you've you've done these crazy crazy things to give me because rather than go tri- like you tell me what what ones you're most proud of these because i know you did kilimanjaro yeah it's no you know for me it's
1: adventure is 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 what i like but for me it's always about the purpose and and the reasons why we do it you know i'm not for for me, I could take or leave any expedition. If if you tell me that if you told me now, you know, I'm trying to raise a hundred thousand from my paddle at the moment to paddle around Great Britain. If you said to me now, Jordan, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the hundred thousand that you're trying to raise, I'd stop paddling tomorrow. You know, so it's for me it's about it's about what we can do through the adventure. It's not about the adventure
0: itself. But you're doing great stuff, right? You're like, like you're raising great money and you're doing great kind of great charity work and you're doing these extreme things that are well, I think it's to show people as well, though, especially the young people, that I'm not a, I'm not a super
1: special forces guy, I'm not a super athlete, I'm not an Olympian, I'm a normal guy who, you know, I go and have a pizza on a Friday, I have a few pints in the pub, and but I like to show people that you can achieve anything, but you've got to believe it and you've got to work hard for it. Um, but ultimately, it's not about what I'm doing, it's about why I'm doing it. I think that's the important thing.
0: And why are you doing this paddle? What's that
1: for? So for me, I've am trying to. i I've been for the last two years trying to build a school on the Horn of Africa uh, for children displaced by the conflict in Somalia and Yemen. Um, we're about 70% complete on this school. It's in a little country called Djibouti, uh, which not many people w- will have heard of. Uh, it's one of the smallest countries in Africa. Uh, but it's a place where most of, not most, but a lot of children from Yemen and Somalia, uh, uh, refugees who've lost their homes, their families. Uh, a lot of them don't have parents anymore, uh, and they're, they're housed in this, in these refugee camps around the Horn of Africa. I, I visited maybe ten times last year, and I just thought, you know, they're, they're just sat there, almost just existing. Not there's no, there's no future. There's no hope, uh, and and I I found that education is the one thing that can inspire hope for a better future. Uh, because it can allow you to access new opportunities. It can allow you to understand more about the world, even the situation that you find yourself in. Uh, so I said, I made a promise. I, I, I looked some children in the eyes there uh, in 20, March 2019. And I spoke to the, the the Minister of Education in Djibouti and I said, can we not build them a school here? I said, I think I've got enough funding and support to be able to deliver something here. And he said to me, he said, Jordan, do you know how many people come from the UK and promise us great things? Uh, I see all these charities, the big names that you'll have heard of and they, they raise lots of funds. We see it on the TV adverts where you have the little African mm-hmm. children running around, but we never see the output here. You know, I, he, said, he said, I can tell you now and I can take you to projects that should have happened, but we've never seen them happen. And I said, well, and I, you know, and I said to him, I, I completely respect that and understand that, but I'm looking you in the eye right now and I shake your hand and I said, I will deliver this project, whatever it takes. Um, and we, I'm, you know, I'm proud to say that 70% of the school is built. The COVID had a bigger impact on delivering materials from the Middle That's East, amazing. the UAE into it. But if i if i finish the 100k which i will do you know and, and i say if i get the 100k i'll stop paddling tomorrow we're on about 16 17k at the just moment. just so
0: people know like tell me where you've been paddling from
1: yeah so i I'm, I'm i'm currently attempting a world first and a world an official guinness world record attempt to, to paddle around great britain a full circumnavigation on a paddleboard uh, a stand-up paddleboard Uh, Probably picked the worst time of year going into the winter to do it, just to add a bit more flavour to the challenge. Um, And then at the same time, just to spice it up a bit, I decided to do it in the middle of a global pandemic, uh, which is is, is not easy either uh, with all the different restrictions. But, you know, we are 87 days in now. Um, I started right in the bottom right-hand corner of England in a place called Essex Um, on the 26th of July. I paddled the south coast of England. John John's nodding. He knows Essex well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Around the South Coast, down the South Coast, round Land's End, across the Bristol Channel into South Wales, came across from South Wales to a place called Kilmore Quay in yeah, Ireland. Yeah, so and I've moved up from Kilmore Quay uh, to here in, in Dublin. Um, and I've got to keep going north into Northern Ireland and then hopefully I'll get back into Scotland and then, and then come round the other side. But it, it's been brutal, it's been relentless. Um, many days where I thought, what am I doing here? And, and wanting to give up, but remembering the why we're doing this
0: stays at the forefront of my mind. Go. You know what, it's just as you were saying all that, one thing you're very, like, um, incredibly admirable, and you, you mentioned at the very start about integrity, and it, it, it comes out of you just very naturally. But having purpose in life makes... Massive. It's so big, it's such a big deal, because sometimes when you don't have a purpose, it, it, you, you, you have a reason to give up. Do you know, it, it, I, I think a lot of the time, the reason I, I'm a bit of a workaholic and and the reason I go to work all the time, and it, it is for that purpose of my family. You know, I remember travelling around with my mother. I did a show called 50 Ways to Kill Your Mammy where she did these extreme things. And it's funny, as we were doing it, I just saw this 70-year-old become this other person. No one was treating her like a little old lady anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I remember this woman saying in the airport, going, you know, she can't sit in the emergency exit seat. And I was just like... She's just done the highest skydive in the world. <laughs> She's just flown a 1942 Warbird upside down. Yeah, yeah. But my mum had this purpose. Do you get me? She- purpose
1: is, is huge in life, I think. You know, I, I always, I, I call it the three P's actually. I have little acronyms. I call it people, purpose and passion. You know, surround yourself with great people. People who inspire you, people who are better than you, smarter than you, people who have that positive energy that you, 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 you know, and, and, and likewise, it's reciprocal. You give it back to them. But, but surround yourself with good people, have a purpose and do it with passion. I think one of the things I've learned in my life is there's a huge difference between success and fulfillment. People think they're chasing success all the time. You know, success is often, it's materialism, it's money, it's social media followers, it's awards, it's it's accolades, yeah. it's public recognition. But that's all bullshit when all is said and done. Absolutely. It's absolute bullshit. Fulfillment comes from within here. Fulfillment is, is what's going to make you get out of school. It's, it's what makes me get out of bed on a rainy day at three in the morning, putting on a cold, frozen wetsuit to get in the Irish Sea. It's about knowing that you've just added a few more bricks to that school in, in on the Horn of Africa. It's about knowing that you're inspiring young people who never believed in themselves, never thought they could do something, uh, to go out and give it a go.
0: Um, and also that feeling, that feeling of, um, I don't doubt for a second that you'll be Standing in the Horn of Africa, looking at a school, and that feeling, like you can't put a price on that, can
1: you? No, absolutely, and that's and and in that respect, it's quite selfish because I I think the charity sector is a fascinating one because it 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 gives you the best feel good factor in the world to be able to help others, you know. So it's quite selfish. I'm all about that. I, I, I do a
0: show here called DIY SOS and. It's all about that. Yeah. It's all that's the only reason all these people volunteer and they, yeah, they yeah. help because you because you get so much good. You go home smiling, beaming because you've done good. When was the first time you did you did a charity job or you you did a you did a fundraiser and and got that feeling? Was because there, there was obviously something that got you hooked? Yeah, there? I think I think the, when I first took fundraising seriously was with Kilimanjaro, and it,
1: and it wasn't necessarily for a cause that I was passionate about. But I, what I learned from that is that you don't have to do something that is the biggest thing that's ever been done in the world. You just have to do things differently and start thinking differently. And two of my friends who were military guys, they said to me, Jordan, uh, we're thinking about an expedition for a cancer-related charity. Um, If you fancy it, we're gonna go and climb Kilimanjaro. And I said to them, it's great, but everyone's climbed, not everyone, but a lot of people have climbed Kilimanjaro. It's a great cause, it's a great feat, but it's not a Mount Everest, for example. You know, it's it's still in that everyone can achieve it type bracket, in in my opinion, with respect. So I said, why don't we do it differently? And I said, and he said, well, what do you mean differently? I said, well, you know, lots of, hundreds, thousands of people climb it every year. We need to do it differently if we're going to be different and attract fundraising and sponsors. And they said, no, 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 why have you got to be crazy and weird? We're just going to do it and climb it. I said, well, I'm going to come with you. I'd say you, your mom was like,
0: why would you bring fucking Jordan along? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be nice and easy, you know?
1: Come on, yeah. Yeah, so I said, well, I'm going to do it with no shoes on. I'm going to climb it with no shoes on, and I'm going to create us a little logo and call it Barefoot Warrior that's how the locals would do it over there uh, and, and you know they raised a thousand pound which was amazing and i raised about seventy pounds and all i did was the same thing but with no shoes on and i just that made me think that you don't have to be the biggest or best you just have to do things differently be a bit of creative and you have to capture the imagination of the public so that's when i when i started running through conflict zones or post-conflict zones i'm not doing anything incredible i'm, I'm running a, a marathon or a, or a half marathon or a 10k which is which is achievable for most people if you do a bit of training and I'm doing it in a place that I've maybe worked or served in, in the military. But when you put them both together and call it running dangerously and give it a little logo and then speak to some TV and film and PR people, that becomes like the most amazing thing in the world. Running dangerously, an ex-soldier running through Iraq to raise money for children. And you've sparked the imagination.
0: What do the locals make when they see <laughs> when they see you in your Nikes
1: flying, flying <laughs> towards do you know what, them? Do you know what the funniest thing was? In Afghanistan, my, I had a sponsor for each different country and... The, the sponsor that when I was in Afghanistan was an insurance company in London and they were they were a hostile environment insurance company and they were called Hostile Environment Liability Protection so their initial spelled out help so on the back of my
0: on the back of my running on the back of my running vest, I had help, and the locals loved it. They were like, "You definitely need help you know? Have you got a good grasp on because you seem to have a kind of uh, certain affinity for for these these war-torn countries. Um, I have some of
1: my bestest friends are in these countries now They are local people in Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia. Mad, isn't uh, it? My, my bestest friends, some of them people who I would trust my life with um, I spend a lot of time in the Horn of Africa in Somaliland, Somalia uh, And I would, oh, these are people who I put my life on the line for, you know. What do you think
0: makes them so special out there? What do you think it is? I think I think the authenticity, the simplicity,
1: they've not been brainwashed by the Western world. People people are just kind and nice because that's the right thing to do. Whereas we are very selfish as, a, as, as, as the Western world, we're very, what is in it for us? What can we get from a situation? But, but you know, when I was in, important part of that story is when I was in Somalia, Iraq and Afghanistan, I had these views before I went there as a civilian and they were all tainted by the images that I had as a soldier or a privateer. Sure. And when I'd been in those countries previously, it would always been carrying a gun of some sort, you know, years before. When I went there as a civilian and didn't tell anyone that I was a soldier the love, the compassion, um, the kindness that I experienced was more than I've ever experienced in my hometown, you know, the people of those three countries, Somalia, Iraq and Afghanistan will always have a massive special place in my heart, I I saw more love and kindness there than I've ever seen. And i was a complete stranger and, and 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 you know the even even with the paddling at the moment i've arrived before that when the covid restrictions were a lot looser than they are now it's really tight mm. now but i would arrive in towns and villages that i'd never even heard of in different parts of the uk or ireland and people would would give me a tent they'd give me food uh, they'd give me a room they, 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 people was, are good you see are a lot of good people in the world and they're the people who I try and find and, and have relationships with and surround myself with, because there is a lot of good. And we, the, the 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 general public gets a tough time, but there is some. There's
0: a lot of good people in the world, uh, and you know you've just got to find them and, and stay stay in touch with them. You were saying about how important it is to find positive people, because I think the flip side of that is the toxic people. And there's loads are, of them. And they'll destroy you, right? They, they will. Can... They will,
1: especially with this this social media world. You know, we live in a world now where people hide behind these keyboards, behind the mask and they can spout out whatever they want yeah. without any accountability at all. And it's, it's my biggest gripe with this celebrity culture, these, these influencers, because you know, they go on these ridiculous shows like Love Island, mm-hmm. you know, where all of a sudden they're catapulted to like extreme fame with millions of followers and they're pumping out these messages that they've got no accountability. They're not messages that are necessarily positive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I go into a school now and I speak to kids and I ask them what they want to be, and often they'll say, I want to be famous. I want to be an Instagram mm-hmm. model. I I, I I, want to be a celebrity. Mm-hmm. But what do you want to be famous for? You know, 20 years ago, you do- That's you, the question, yeah, what do you yeah, want to be yeah, famous yeah, for? You know, yeah, go and be all these great things, but you know, I, 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 I I just think with social media there needs to be stronger laws surrounding things like bullying, accountability and if someone's going to be catapulted to fame overnight, that needs to be in some kind of controlled manner because you know, if, if you've got millions of followers, you've got a voice, a strong voice yeah. and you need to be accountable for the things that you're pushing out there. The, the, the sad world we live in, if you're doing good things and you're going to bigger heights, people are trying to pull you down quickly, you know, I see that all the time if you're doing something good and especially for me it's not so bad because i don't care about recognition for me i do it for me to try and do it for the cause but if you're doing good things and you and you're in the public domain and you're being recognized with awards and things people want to knock you off your perch very quickly
0: (laughs) absolutely what's next for you now
1: um probably lots more paddling and so i got a lot more paddling until i raised that that 100k um so where are you at at the moment today i'm i'm currently offshore in a place called Mornington and then I'm gonna try and head to a place called clocher um, head
0: yes <laughs> is yes. that the right hang yes. on. on yeah <laughs> I,
1: I'm going to that, that's my next target and that should be me after clocher head uh, exiting Ireland uh, into Northern Ireland but of course lots of restrictions so it's very unlikely I'll actually get to go ashore in any of these places now because of the restrictions so I'll probably be anchored offshore on a support boat
0: is that what they do you you kind of paddle it to a certain point and they drop a buoy or something is it yeah so
1: i put a gps pin um so i i, I can paddle all day long and then i'll, I'll drop a gps pin or, or or the team will to mark where i am and then when i start paddling again when the weather's good I have to carry on from that exact point. It must
0: be fucking hard. Oh,
1: it's horrible. It's brutal. Because <laughs> right, there's, an, there's an
0: image of people, just you just
1: nonchalantly, like, just hardly... When <laughs> I was going past Brighton and Bournemouth in the summer, it was beautiful. And I thought, what's all what the fuss about? This yeah. is easy. It's like a bit of a holiday. But crossing the Irish Sea was a, was a culture shock for me. And how many hours are you out there, roughly? So, I think the longest I've been out in a day is about 17. But sometimes... It depends on 17 the 17 hours? Yeah, yeah. It depends, depends on the weather and the conditions, the wind and the tide. And
0: where's, where's your head? <laughs> like, what do you thinking when you're right there? You oh, you this? think
1: everything. You know, I've, I've, I've built lots of skills. I've won the lottery. I had a new girlfriend. I've been remarried. <laughs> everything, you know, you, you, you go through every scenario possible. But, you know, an, an Irishman actually gave me some great advice. He, the best piece of advice that I, I had, he said, one day at a time and stay in the game. And that's what I try and think about, just staying in the game as long as possible because it's very, you have you have a lot of bad days, you know, when it's rough weather, a lot of frustrations with all these COVID things, you can't move. But I just try to stay in the game and always think tomorrow's a new day. Um, and you, you almost accept as well as an adventurer, there will always be lows, but there's also incredible highs. And you've got to remember that the lows don't last forever. They last for a day or two.
0: Like when you're spending time like that and, and you're doing these, and you're doing them for brilliant causes, but when you're actually physically doing these incredible, Immensely difficult challenges. Do you do? You, are, is there a lot of self exploration? Are you in your head a lot? Are you developing? Are yeah, you learning so, a lot yeah. about I think, yourself?
1: I think so. I think I think reflection is important. You know, I, I often I will spend the last fifteen twenty minutes before I go to sleep at night. What did I learn today? What could I have done better today? Um, you know, how did I grow? How did I, how have I developed? One of the concepts I've learned quite recently is reframing negative thoughts into neutral or positive thoughts. So for example, um, today I can't paddle because the weather's really bad. That's really frustrating. And you know, and, and typically I'd be going, you know, fucking hell, bloody weather again, storms. Mm. But instead of saying that, why not say, this is a day where I can let my body recover. I can go and do an awesome podcast with you guys. Um, I can meet some cool new people. Um, I can get some good nutrition in me for once this week. So just trying to, we can always reframe our thoughts into a different perspective. I think it's so important, the yeah. prism that you look at
0: life through, isn't it? It's, oh, absolutely. It's, and it's, it, that's all it is. It's just a different angle of looking at the yeah, same situation. it's the same situation. situation, but it's just a different yeah, perspective. 100%. And now, because I'm practicing it every day, you
1: know, I can stop myself doing it before I have a moan. I can think it's quite easy to find positives at the moment because the whole world is at a standstill. This, this, this coronavirus, this pandemic, people are losing the jobs. People uh, don't know when they're going to go to work again. People are dying. So I can find positives in my day quite quickly by just having some perspective on the world right now. Um, you know, if, if, if you're going home and all your family are healthy and fit and, you, and you've still got food on the table, you're better off than a lot of people right now in, yeah. in the world.
0: Uh, Jordan, I know how busy you are. And and oh, I can't tell you how much it means to meet you face to face. No, well and likewise, a because, pleasure. Because because I just think you're fantastic, and I think you're exactly what's needed for for young men, especially out there, to kind of see um, see what a, a a man is about, and just for for all the charity stuff that you're doing, I just think it's. No, you're very kind. No, it's I mean it. Like I just, I, I have this, it, it's a kind of pet passion of mine at the moment is just these positive male role models. There's a lot of talk about women and I have a lot of daughters and I'm delighted that they're moving a certain way, but I worry about my boys sometimes and, and how they see themselves. And I think people like you out there um, doing what you're doing and having such integrity and being such a good guy and coming from the background that you've come from as well it's just fucking amazing. I just think it's outstanding. <laughs> no, thank you. Know? you. Uh, I wish you all the best. I don't doubt it for a second. I'll give you a big shout out with everything else. And um, I hope you raise as much money as you can, as fast as you can. Because <laughs> um, I don't want you out there for too much longer. An absolute honour to be on the show. Nah, um, listen, a real privilege. Nah, thank you. Listen. Big- hey! <laughs> Happy days, man. That's, uh, that was just fascinating. Just brilliant. Deadly, isn't he? Isn't he? He's brilliant. Look, uh, for, for Jordan shout-out, please, please help him build his school on the Horn of Africa. What he's doing is wild and has never been attempted, and he deserves your support. Um, you just go and donate uh, at the thegreatbritishpaddle.com. That's the thegreatbritishpaddle.com. You can also check out any of his books, The Citadel. I've read that one. It's brilliant. Um, like Jordan said, I think one day at a time. You are strong You just mightn't know it yet I think Arnie put it best Now I'm going to paraphrase Because I can't remember exactly But True strength doesn't come from fecking winning shit You mad? Your struggles Your hardships They they develop your strength When you go through shit And troubles And woes uh, And real heartbreak And challenges And you decide not to surrender Not to give up There you go That's your strength Right there Get up Find the tiny, small positives and build. Preach, baby, preach! preach. Listen, uh, that's pretty much it for this week. As always, um, thank you for listening. Please, if you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, like, leave a comment, maybe share, it. share it with your friends, tell them. Oh my god, I found a great podcast. Go listen to the good badger. You know what to say. And um, do that. And um, you can get me on all my social media at b Ash on Twitter, Instagram, all that. And that's pretty much it uh, from all of us here. So uh, what will I say? But uh, good luck in the cup.